Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Narduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea. How are you? I'm okay. Spring is springing, isn't it? It is. The sun is out, which is amazing. I've developed a, a worrying condition in which the highs and lows of my spirit are dictated almost entirely by the number of daffodils coming up and not yet trampled in the garden it's a very risky way of living well it's risky until no no it means you'll be pretty much ecstatic until about the end of march and then quite depressed for the rest of the year (laughs) i'll enjoy it while i can Uh, today i counted 23 daffodils so with level 23 enthusiasm don't ask out of what total let me reveal what is coming up on this week's show Nomadland, a new film directed by Chloe Zhao, inspired by a book by the investigative reporter Jessica Bruder, centers on a single middle-aged wanderer who, like thousands of impoverished Americans, reaches the realization that her country will not care for her once she is old. And so she takes to the road. Colin Grant will join us to tell us more and we'll dip into the historical dictionary of science fiction. Plus there's news of robot writers. But first, let's turn to the American photographer Walker Evans and a recent book by the art historian Svetlana Alperts entitled Walker Evans, Starting from Scratch. The critic and novelist Joyce Carol Oates writes at length this week about this man known as the Flaubert of photographers who, in a generation of much admired practitioners, including Alfred Stieglitz, Dorothea Lange, Imogen Cunningham and Ansel Adams, distinguished himself through the deceptively simple minimalist beauty of his pictures. We see rural churches, dilapidated barns, the rusty rotten wrecks of cars and farm vehicles, peeling posters and empty interiors suggesting lives passed through. Where there are people, they are anonymous, in a sense absent even before our very eyes. Joyce Carol Oates joins us on the line now to tell us more. Hello, Joyce. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Um, It's been such a treat for me as a reader to have a reason to go back and look again at Walker Evans's work. We know them, you know, these photos, we can see them in the back of our minds, but to actually look at them again, concentratedly is an experience. I imagine you felt something similar working on the piece. Well, absolutely. This is what we expect from a a really good biography. It sends us back to this primary material, which we've somewhat taken for granted. And of course, in this biography, there are hundreds of, of beautiful photography plates. And I'm, I'm looking at them right now. And so the biography begins with 143 pages of photographs. So it's always there. And, and as you read the, the book itself, you can keep making references back to the actual work. Um, and you mentioned his quintessential American minimalism and his documentary lyricism. Can you talk to us a bit about his, his aesthetic ideal? Well, I gather from what he has, the the quotations in the biography, which are very helpful, I gather that Walker Evans' aesthetic ideal was simplicity. 
almost a kind of geometrical orderliness to the composition of a photograph. He did not believe in anything like the equivalent of photoshopping. <laughs> you know, to him, the, the object and the image had a kind of sanctity in itself. So he might just take a photograph of a tattered billboard, or it could be a barbershop, often with no one, no one in a room, and the room characterizes, in a way, the people who are not there. The word um, purity or, or variance of, of purity comes up a lot when we talk about Evans, doesn't it? Yes, and I believe he was the first photographer to consider the composition of a photograph without recourse to its actual subjects. That is, he could as easily take a photograph of a tattered billboard or some rusted tools arranged in, in a geometrical way than a portrait of some you know, famous politician. To him, the composition of the photograph was the aesthetic ideal rather than the content or the subject. Joyce, I love the way that you uh, it's all tied into uh, other American artists of the time, particularly maybe William Carlos Williams, um, you mentioned, and some of the music of Charles Ives. And William Carlos Williams, his famous thing was no ideas but in things, wasn't it? You look at the object, you don't impose whatever you may be thinking about the object. Is that Yes, no idea? ideas but in things, yes. Walker Evans does have photographs of people, and he does have photographs that seem to suggest a connection with American history, commemorative photographs of, of the Civil War era. So it isn't just no ideas but in things, you know, through his whole career, but that's the bedrock. He managed to, I mean, it's, it's quite rare in a sense, he managed to get through his whole career without falling back on or, or just getting involved in celebrity portraiture. There's a fruitful comparison you make in the piece. I'm not sure if it comes from the book or or from you, but um, between Evans's work and his famous contemporary, Alfred Stieglitz. Yes, Stieglitz was much more of an experimenter with photographs. He did things that suggest um, dreamlike, or it's sort of the reverse of the simplicity. Stieglitz also has many, many beautiful portraits of, of George O'Keefe, and they, they seem to me very, very beautiful. Walker Evans may have been creating in Stieglitz a kind of rival, someone against whom he could measure himself. Well, because in, in a sense, I mean, Alfred Stieglitz, when you look at his, his, his photographs, I don't know whether perhaps the word you were looking for was that there is this really self-consciously artistic act of composing and, and creating an overall mood and, and all of that sort of thing, which I wonder whether, would Walker Evans have objected to his work even being called art rather than, say, reportage? I mean, the context, I suppose, of his, the nature of his employer presumably would have influenced how he felt about what he was doing, whether it was a, a government program or something for Fortune magazine. But I wonder whether he felt that this was not art, this was reportage. Well, I think it was art. He was very much influenced in, in some way by Baudelaire and by Flaubert, and he was very interested in poetry. I mean, he, he wasn't, he wasn't in, a, in a sense, any sort of a primitive person, you know. I think he felt that what he was doing was a different kind of art. Can we talk about that one a bit? Because I was, I could see the Flaubert, um, you know, he wants, he wants to be objective, all of those things, he wants to be naturalistic. I completely can see the Flaubert, but the Baudelaire surprised me a bit more. What was it from Baudelaire that he, um, that he took, do you think? Well, I think that he probably didn't know Baudelaire that well. I think he acknowledges that he hadn't read that much of Baudelaire. But what he particularly liked about Baudelaire was the focus upon things that are marginal or broken or something lying in the gutter. You could take a photograph of some very interesting decaying things on a street in the gutter and make a work of art out of that. So that idea of seeing beauty, not just in kind of the obvious things we might find beautiful, but in sort of decay and rubbish and detritus, that kind of thing. That was really, uh, I think that was all that it was. One thing I found very interesting and surprising about Walker Evans, and I did not know it before reading Savannah Alper's biography, is that Walker Evans didn't take any photographs of nature. He doesn't have the sort of Ansel Adams reverence for the natural world that he found nature boring and not a subject for art. I was really sort of stunned. What an interesting, weird idea. For an American artist as well, not, not to take any notice of the landscape is quite something. I know, it? and I'll give you this ast astonishing example. 
instead of taking photographs of the desert and of cacti, which I think are so beautiful and photographs of the desert are infinitely beautiful to me, he would take a photograph of a cactus that had been defaced by somebody carving his initials in it, or we would say, you know, vandalizing a cactus plant. And Walker Evans would find that interesting because the human being had done something to nature. So he might take a photograph of that, or he took photographs of, instead of the landscape, the beautiful trees and the contours of the hills, he would take the same sort of photograph, but a rusted old junkyard. I mean, if that would sort of suggest that, you know, the rejection of nature would be him looking to the opposite, you know, him looking to the man-made and and progress and how man is shaping uh, nature for the better. That isn't the case either, is it? No, he didn't believe in progress. He He did not like the idea of progress or change. His photographs are often of old, broken, rusted things, like an old barn, an old church, statues in a, in a cemetery. He was very quirky. It's another very, again, I can't think of another American artist who says, no, I don't, I'm not interested in progress. I don't care about that. <laughs> well, it may be at the heart of a lot of art. It's sort of reactionary, looking to the past. Most poets and writers do look to the past because their own lifetime is all that they know, you know, existentially. So it's very rare that people do write about, very knowledgeably about the present time, just reporters and journalists. Most novelists can't keep up with the present time. Is there sort of, I mean, is there an inevitable romance here then? I mean, whether for Evans himself or for us now looking at these documents of a then disappearing, but now well and truly lost time? Yes, absolutely. I think so. And it, it answers some demand in the human nature. Because if most of us go back to our hometowns, we are really looking at and we, our eyes seek out the original buildings and you know the roads and fields that we knew when we were children. We don't really want to look too much at more contemporary things like say there's a new building that was just built and opened you know, on the mall. We don't really care about that much. We want to see the old barn that we played in when we were children. But nostalgia is not a contemptible emotion. I think nostalgia is very rich and ambiguous and maybe makes us human. It's our area of vulnerability. So Walker Evans speaks to that nostalgic impulse in America. And so does Edward Hopper. Um, the, the book that occasions all of this, this looking back, as you mentioned, is Walker Evans, starting from scratch by Svetlana Alpers. So Alpers makes a selection of photos, as you mentioned, that they're all at the front of the book and they take us from uh, the 1920s and, and end uh, appropriately, you say, with a melancholy colour photograph from 1973 called Dead End, and he, he died in 1975. Um, is there an overarching trajectory to the work, an evolution, or are there moments of change, or is the aesthetic more or less stable from the beginning to the end? Well, he does go through some some changes, very definitely. He's working with different kinds of cameras. At one point in his later life, he went into the New York City subway and took photographs covertly. He had a little camera in his coat and was taking photographs of people. Today, that would be considered a, a real infringement on their privacy. But at that point, you know, no, nobody seemed to criticize him. It was Svata Alpers suggests that these are very weird. They're very, very strange. Well, she has an interesting theory, doesn't she? Because it sounds almost like it's something approaching a, a, a strange kind of self-portraiture almost in the way that he captures these people. Well, you could say that about anything. I mean, a, a voyeur may be seeking out some image himself. Yeah. I mean, a serial killer may be seeking out some image of himself, but that's just a way of speaking. I suppose, I suppose what interests me is that... He, is the question of how Evans sort of conceives of his place in the work, because there's all of the the non-appearance stuff, but there's also, you know, the, the kind of authorial removal. But there's also elsewhere, he's referring to himself in the third person, you, you, you quote a bit. And then in this New York subway series of these photos secretly taken without consent, there's a different kind of dynamic at work. So I'm just wondering who or what he sort of sees himself as in this, in the relationship. As a, as a writer myself, a kind of artist, I think what's primary in, the, in creativity is the wish to be involved in something that is not, not ourselves. You know, like a pianist, um, an artist, 
is embarking upon some sort of project that isn't just himself or herself, but it involves a, an exploration of you know going out and spending time creating something in, independent of the self. So he's got this camera, and perhaps as he gets older, he becomes somewhat compulsive. I do know photographers who are obsessed with their cameras. They talk about their cameras when they're together in a way that's endearingly comic, if you, if you know any photographers. If two or three of them get together, all they talk about is their cameras, <laughs> and their lenses, and it's, they are absolutely uh, entranced. You know. <laughs> I, if you keep waiting for them to stop talking about it and maybe talk about aesthetics <laughs> or an actual photograph, but no, they're more interested in, in the technique. Now, I found that obviously that is part of Walker Evans. He does become compulsive. So going into the New York subway for days and days and days with uh, a camera hidden in his coat is what he, what he was doing with his compulsion at that moment. You know, he could have been working for Time magazine or Fortune magazine, taking photographs of some people, but, but he hadn't been commissioned to do that. So he's taking photographs of people covertly. There's another thing that, um, that you say that Alpers notices that um, if he's not looking for the photograph. Yeah. He just takes lots and lots and lots of them, like an artist working, or, or, or some artists who, who, who don't end up with the work, but they have lots of variations on it. Yes, I thought Alpers was very interesting on, on that subject. Her whole book is really suffused with her, her, her emotional involvement in the subject, and I think it's so warm and sympathetic and and really a wonderful biography. I have read a number of, of excellent biographies and, and this was is definitely one of them. She talks about the photographs so lovingly and I really appreciated that. She's totally on the side of the photographer. She's not being critical. Sometimes a biographer will take a little stance, you know, rather prim and pious, but not Alpers. She's very sympathetic. I suppose this is part of, I mean, you, you point out as, as well that starting from scratch is a rather odd subtitle for a book about a photographer who talked often of his, his predecessors and, and, uh, and teachers, but it actually applies to the author herself, doesn't it, as a lifelong scholar of painting, making a move into photography, and, and that inevitably will bring a freshness of, of perspective. Absolutely. I didn't want to say anything negative in my review, which I, I did not, but I didn't like the title at all. <laughs> I thought start, starting from scratch was arguably the ugliest title I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> on, on a book of beautiful photographs, just the words like starting, starting is not a great word. No. Scratch, scratch is not the right word at all. It, it's such an ugly word. There's no music in it. And there's so much music and beauty in these photographs. So I sort of dealt with how am I going to express my, my kind of disillusion with, with the title. I would love to know if she had any other titles. I talk to that, my students about things like that because I reteach writing. <laughs> Sometimes if they have a title that's just not really right and no, nobody likes it, I'll say, did you have any alternative titles? And they sometimes will say a title that's so much better. And I said, well, why didn't you choose this other title? Well, pa perhaps you could, you could workshop this and we'll send a list of, of suggestions <laughs> for the reprint. Yeah, or for the British edition. It could be called something completely <laughs> yeah. different. Well, you know, at the same time, it's, that's none of my business. And <laughs> as a reviewer, it's, I wouldn't say that in the review, but just as if I, if I were a friend of hers, I would say, incidentally, Sabata, that was not really a great title. <laughs> she might say, well, I didn't really like it myself either but you know there's usually some reason but the word scratch just just doesn't evoke anything that has to do with these photographs no you're right well um let's end on a positive note then um what does her knowledge of the history of painting add to our understanding of evans photography if you could sort of give us one one thing that she that she she brought to the work that really surprised you and, and made you see it differently somehow yes i think the last two chapters one is called turning in and one is just the the afterward are really excellent. Uh, the The biography rises to even a greater level than, than than previous chapters. She talks about late late style. So when Evans was nearing the end of his life, the kind of photographs he was taking sort of take us back to the simplicity again, sort of going back to one's roots. 
And she talks about late style in, in painters and late style just generally. And she talks about, uh, as he pro Evans approached the end of his life, his ate he turns back to, and many of his subjects, interiors, wagons, mirrors, metalwork become his. And so the photographs of his late style seem to press against expected categories. In other words, they are expected discoveries of his own pleasure. I'll quote her, that might be a working definition of a late style for a painter. And on the evidence of Atchge and Evans, it can be the same for a photographer that is going back to one's earlier work with a particular sort of a renewed pleasure. Well, it seems like you've renewed, you've found a renewed pleasure, you've renewed your own pleasure, if you like, in, in uh, Walker Evans's work, and you've certainly done that for us as well. So, um, Joyce Cowlitz, it's been a, a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you. Bye-bye. Still to come on the show from Walker Evans, we'll move to Nomadland, a new film that seems to share some of the ethics and aesthetics we've just discussed, and the historical dictionary of science fiction. Who can tell me what to grok means? And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, a gentle reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast for free via any podcast provider. and You'll never miss an episode. There's accounts of, you know, Owen possibly going around the east end of London and cruising and Shadwell Stairs is his experience of that. Owen writes, I walk till the stars of London wane and dawn creeps up the shadow stair, but when the crowing sirens blare, I, with another ghost, am lain. And so when you read this as a cruising poem, you actually understand it as being a quite <laughs> radical, unexpected poem about Owen's promiscuity in the east end of London while he's on shore leave. I mean, he goes into the whole history of bipedalism and how the human being got up on its hind legs and walked and uh, what a huge difference this has made to humanity and culture and, and, our, and our way of living. I mean, my big toes by now are completely horrible, so I didn't like to be made to think about them too much. They're, they're really, <laughs> truly hideous now. But he does say we must look at our big toes bravely and learn to confront them. There was a book I read just at the start of lockdown, and it's quite light, but I, I just found it incredibly engaging. It's by Mark O'Connell. It's called Notes from an Apocalypse. And this is basically about doomsday preppers, people who are getting ready for the end of the world. And he sort of has this fairly glib but not unattractive cold eye which he casts on the world. He asked at one point, why was it so unacceptable that humanity should simply run its course? So um, I thought you said it was light. I was about <laughs> to say it myself. However... <laughs> That's your light relief, what, is it? What do you However, mean? However, it's yeah. very, very funny. I don't know, but this is probably kind of a terrible thing to say, but I think some of the sort of pressure goes out of the poem in those last couple of books. I, I'm sort of not so interested in all the firing the arrows through the axe heads and the sort of slaughtering of the suitors. don't know what you feel, Lucy, because you're a classicist and I... It seems to slightly lose its way there. Actually, the bit with the dog is very moving. When he just arrives... Terribly that, moving. That's very moving, and then, you're right, very things moving. have to be settled. But actually, I think also all the business with the maids and the killing them and things... Oh, God. Yeah, reminds you that he's a warrior. He's not a lovely guy. Oh, no. <laughs> it's awful, isn't it? That bit is so 
Puritan, isn't it? <laughs> just because they just because they're having a bit of fun with the suitors, they get hanged. And and you're right that the, the Penelope thing, there has to be a mechanism by which they have to get back together. So it's a brilliant way to, to do it. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about the bed is absolutely lovely. The olive tree, yeah. very moving and tender. But by that point, he's already killed so many people. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Before we get to the film Nomadland, Alice Wadsworth is here to fill us in on a few things we might otherwise miss. Alice, it's nice to have you on again. How are things with you? Yeah, well, the best they've been this year so far, I think. Brilliant. What what an (laughs) upbeat, positive, odd answer. (laughs) Don't knock it, Thea. Just take it. Say yes. Yes, I don't know. I don't know what to do with it. Brilliant. Okay, moving on. Well, Alice, you're here. Uh, well, you're here because we like you very much. Um, but also, you're here to tell us about this week's NB column. What's going on? Well, this week, MC is looking at the Historical Dictionary of Science Fiction, which I'm particularly excited by, e- edited by Jesse Shieldlower, which launched online last month. So anyone listening can go and play around with it now, and you should. Shieldlower began the project with the intention of expanding the Oxford English Dictionary's coverage. But then over lockdown, they kind of took over it and turned it into something a lot larger. So it's, it's separate to yeah. the Oxford English Dictionary? Yeah, it's, it's kind it's of an adjunct. It's an add-on more than anything, because it's also more interested in following the progress of words as they're used across different texts. So it's not going to go into, for example, all the different terms of Star Wars characters um, oh. That's a shame. <laughs> I'm just... There's still room for you to do that, Lucy. Speaking as a nerd. Anyway, sorry, go on. But so, so how many how many terms are there so far? There's over 1,800 and they go back oh, gosh. to the beginning of the 20th century. And most of them, well, almost all of them actually, um, have the earliest known uses, links to biographical information about the writers, links to more than 1,600 scans of original pages where the words appeared. So quite a lot of information per word. Gosh, yeah. These are, I mean, this uh, the risk of sounding about seven years old. These are made up words. I mean, <laughs> what I mean is these are words that science fiction writers have had to invent because they've come up with a new idea. Is that the thing? Yes. And a lot of the time, they've actually moved into real science. Mm, I was going to say, so it's like a repository of new ideas, apart from anything else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's kind of the nice process of following them through 
different texts, starting with one, one author and then being picked up kind of as the idea progresses through the whole science fiction universe. Well, as well as terms for existing things, because there's my favourite, I think, to Grok, which I mentioned earlier, uh, which it says comes from uh, Stranger in a Strange Land, published in 1961 by Robert Heinlein. And to Grok is to perceive or understand fully, to feel empathy with, to enjoy um, or appreciate, as in Smith grokked that their intentions were benign. So it's a bit, it's, interest, it's interesting to me, partly because grokking to grok somehow doesn't sound at all like the processes. I suppose this is a bit like what Joyce Carol Oates was saying earlier about the subtitle of, of the book we discussed, not seeming to correspond with the matter in hand, but to grok somehow doesn't sound like the processes involved in perceiving, fully appreciating. It's too short and Harsh sound. I, th- I, th- I think of it as being a bit like to dig. You know, it's like a kind of groovy fifties. Like I dig it, man. I dig. Oh, do you Smith, rock it? Smith digged that. You know, or dog. Sorry. <laughs> you know, you, you can <laughs> dig it that 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 they don't have hostile intentions. Oh, I see. I mean, I don't oh, know. That just, works. That's just my. That's just the way I think about. That's it. just the way you think about grokking. <laughs> yeah, that, that exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Alice, how do you think about grokking, <laughs> or indeed any other? Terms? I was thinking about yeah, how they might relate to the time they're created as well as you know, specific to the universe they're in or something as well. I quite like Ansible. The term was coined by Ursula Le Guin to describe a fictional device, um, which is used in quite a few of her texts, that sends and receives messages over any distance instantaneously, which kind of allows for communicational time travel without needing warp speed, which is also in the dictionary, um, or any physical contact. And that makes a really nice basis for a lot of her more philosophical and anthropological ideas of communication across time and different civilizations at different points in growth and the way she explores that in lots of different areas and that's gone on to be used by a lot of other science fiction authors as a specific object so it's not even just a word it's a specific device um, that hasn't been invented but is very prevalent now in science fiction. It's probably being invented somewhere yeah, at this so. very moment. Of course, some some of this, some people find exactly this very off-putting because it just sounds like people are just sort of sticking silly words in. I, but I remember <laughs> um, talking to David Gregg um, when they did that production of Solaris mm. and he said that they ha- they wanted to be very careful not to say, oh, just use that. And I've forgotten the word. It's a word that they use and it's like the phlasmatron or something, but it wasn't that. But they just made up a silly science fiction word because he never wanted to go into that territory where you have to say, floggle the phlasmatron and let's go. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? There are some people who very much want to keep it within what we know and not to have these alienating, no pun intended, words that make you feel like it's not your universe but I really like them to be honest I mean it it depends how they're used as well doesn't it I love them for bringing in concepts that we maybe wouldn't usually have like one of my favorites is another Le Guin one which is Kema which comes from the left hand of darkness and describes kind of a a monthly mating state because the Gethinians in the book um, are all agender and they only become gendered during this special time every month. I've definitely read about that. And not, I don't think that particular word, but I've definitely read that idea in uh, other much more recent science fiction. But frankly, almost everything Ursula Le Guin said, <laughs> someone's picked it up, haven't they? Because it was usually so rich and True. interesting. I, she, I think she's got 22 entries in the dictionary of um, the science fiction dictionary. Um, this sort of brings us sideways into artificial intelligence doesn't it I mean not not so much in the realms of science fiction anymore perhaps no uh, not at all <laughs> now the Turing test's been passed and AI's in everything from our TVs to across social media in the form of bots um, and now is writing a play so Czech artists and scientists are collaborating on a play written by uh, artificial intelligence named AI when a robot writes a play um, and it marks the centenary of Carol Capek's 1921 play, R.U.R. So what they've done is they're trying to make it the life of a robot as described by an AI. So it's the outcome of a programming a computer to generate dialogue regarding the everyday, their everyday life. Yeah, that's, and that, isn't that because also that robot is a Czech word, isn't it? In fact, was it... Mm. I think maybe it was in that play that the, that the yeah, I think he word coined was coined. It. it depends what you mean by AI, doesn't it? It depends if it's a uh, an algorithm that's run away with itself or it's something that can say, 
you know, did you like that book? Do you want this one? Or yeah. it depends what they mean by it. But it's certainly it's being tested out in all sorts of areas, including now um, the artistic, which seems weird to us. But, you know, I think it's just extremely interesting. Well, it's been coming for a long, long time anyway, for almost as long as as long as machines have existed. People have worried about, you know, whether machines can write novels, can create art all of that sort of thing. It's... Yeah, it's funny the idea of being threatened by it, though, isn't it? Isn't it just interesting? Mm. To be like, great, yeah, mm. all right, let me read the robot's book. I don't think I feel massively threatened at this stage, having now heard about, uh, because there's a novel as well, isn't isn't there? And, and it, it sounds odd. <laughs> I mean, the process of it and the terrible pun in the author name, that disarms it for me. But it's, <laughs> yeah, it's like you say, this book by, uh, this is what you object to, isn't it, Thea? Robot Louis Stevenson. That is what I object to. <laughs> I quite like it, but, you know, <laughs> I've got no taste. And it's um, it claims to be, what is it, 100,000 words of dialogue, narrative and rewritten press cuttings. Mm. The extract that's in NB is a kind of slightly saucy thing. And someone says, um, I think this is the editor, is it? Says, editing was required to ameliorate errors, but machines do not understand political correctness as they look through windows, not prisms. So first of all, I'm going to say, well, they look through what we give them. (laughs) They can only do that, frankly, until they really do become autonomous. It depends what you put in to the AI as to what the AI is going to uh, output. The book as well was edited by a human in the end as well. So we're not redundant yet. <laughs> well, there's another. There's they're always edited by humans, but again, why not? That's interesting, brilliant. There's an absolutely brilliant, and I can't remember where it is. If if people are interested, they'd be able to look it up. There's an absolutely brilliant uh, Harry Potter spoof written by an AI, which I think was honed a little bit. Um, not a whole book, just a little bit of one. But it was one of the funniest things I've read for a while. So that's recommended. I think it's called Harry Potter and the Small Pile of Ash, if I remember right. <laughs> if that if that hasn't interested people enough to find out what exactly we are talking about by seeking out the NB column uh, this week, I don't know what will. I don't know if you just heard Alf groan in the background then, by the way. <laughs> sorry. Alf the dog making him, himself Can help. I say one last thing, and I'm very sorry. Yes, it's not called Harry Potter and the Small Pile of Ash. It's called Harry Potter and the Portrait of What Looked Like a Large Pile of Ash. That's even better. <laughs> it's much better. Now, whatever age you are, if you think about your late career or even retirement, you might imagine relaxation, being able to follow interests or creative paths you never had time for, maybe spending leisurely time with family and friends. You probably don't think about living in a camper van, more or less hand to mouth, constantly on the move in search of piecemeal or seasonal work. But this is the reality for many people, especially in the US, and is the subject of a new film by the director Chloe Zhao. Our esteemed contributor, Colin Grant, has written about it for us and joins us today. Colin, many thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a great film, which I really, really uh, was pleased to be able to see. Yeah, it's got a lot in it, hasn't it? Um, First of all, do you think you could unravel the fact and the fiction behind the film for us? Yes. Well, the fact is that there was a book written in 2017 by an intrepid investigative journalist called Jessica Bruder, who... uh, traveled with these nomads, these new nomads who travel around the USA looking for work. And they're mostly elderly or middle-aged people now, often single people. And she lived and was inspired by them and wrote a book, a kind of oral history type book of their experiences, which she called Nomadland. These people are on the way to somewhere and on the way to nowhere. And that book was also read by Chloe Zhao a few years ago, and she was very much inspired by the story to try to bring it to the screen. So this new film is also called Nomadland, and it includes many of the people whom Jessica Bruder interviewed for her book, and they are playing versions of themselves. The main character in Jessica Bruder's book is called Linda May, 
and she also appears in the film, but in a way, her role is really played by Frances McDermott, whose character is called Fern. She's kind of version of Linda May, this 60-year-old single nomad. Um, and it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because if you didn't know that, if you just went to the film cold uh, and hadn't heard any context around it, you wouldn't know that at all, would you? You wouldn't know. I was trying to work out when you would know. I think you might know at the end. Yes, only at the end. I mean, I didn't know, in all honesty, Lucy, uh, as I was watching it, I thought, oh, my God, these are fantastic actors who are able to act in a very natural fashion. And that this director has must, must have sat with them very patiently in order to draw out these very lifelike portrayals. Um, and equally, uh, you equally begin to think this might even be a documentary as you're watching it because it so, seems to be so natural and so absorbed in the actual place and time. And there seems to be no artifice. There's, there's no sense of them putting on any sense of, of fiction. That even when the character played by Frances McDermott comes on the screen, you for a moment think that she is really a nomad. She is really a wanderer because she seems to be no different from anybody else on the screen. And it has this sort of straight, it is a strange hybrid of fiction and non-fiction. But it works. It does really work really, really well. Do you think it weakens the real life stories or enhances them? Why? Why? I'm just interested in why you would put the fictional story in there. Do you see? Yes, I do see. I think for people who are not familiar with this world, and I think many of the people who watch the film will be unfamiliar with it, having the fictional character of Frost McDormand act as their navigator lets you into the world lets you almost position yourself in that world in a way that you might not do if it was a straight documentary. And you say Frances McDormand's, her, her performance in Among Them, it's particularly strong. It's, I mean, it's it, as you say, it's just the music doesn't come until about 20 minutes in. And up until then, you could just be watching, as you say, you could be watching a documentary, couldn't you? Because she's, she's amazing. She's amazing. And what I loved about her was that um, she's obviously, obviously a very humble and intuitive and intelligent actor and she doesn't draw your attention your attention draws to her because she is so compelling but she moves uh, around them as if she's one of them and when I was watching it at first it was almost as if the extras had taken over the film it's almost as if you're watching a film about the extras and she was she was the um, the also ran because she was the outsider to their story and there's something about the the very sort of pared down very simple scenery and setting and very simple and straightforward narrative that allows you in as well because these are, are all vulnerable people making the best of their very difficult situations and and what you get I think is a sense of the Fern character played by Frances McDermott you get a sense of her isolation even in the midst of this very populated caravan of people whom she joins but they're all very damaged as well and what was tender and loving about it was that that's not the focus of the film. There are moments when this caravan of nomads traveling around America, they might set up at a campsite and there'll be a campfire and they'll be sitting around telling their stories, almost like their war stories. But they're not told with rancor, they're not told with pity, they're just told as is, just in a kind of matter of fact way. Their stories about separation, their stories about a repossession of their homes, their stories about cancer or, or terminal illness. But there's a sense that they are a kind of community of people who have time and place for each other. They're very kind of collegiate and considerate towards each other. And so it seems to be a very tender film. And in, in the review, I write about it as being almost a utopia. These are people who've, who've stepped away from the mainstream of American life and found a new, richer way of living, even though it's one that's full of privations and one where there are greater uncertainties. And that, that's interesting uh, because, I mean, you were talking about war stories there and some of the terms you use, and I think the film does, are terms of violence and war. You mentioned the walking wounded, conscientious objectors. But there, there isn't anger and bitterness there. No, there isn't. I think there's a kind of um, survival instinct that makes people sanguine actually, but also it makes you think more deeply about what it is that really matters. And I think uh, company matters for these people and companionship matters. And that's why you're so drawn towards Fern because you want her to be part of this ensemble. 
but she's forever the outsider. And you recognize that she is carrying some deep, deep wound that even not being in the company of these people can, can help Lance. And it's her sadness which pervades the film. It, it kind of covers the film like a blanket almost. And, and I say in my piece, you want to reach into the screen and give the Frances McDermott character a hug because it's so pitiful and she seems so bereft and lost and there's no way that she will ever come to the end of this great sadness. Yeah, and you also say that actually she wouldn't thank you for it, which you feel that she wouldn't. She'd be like, no, I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm okay, don't worry. It has that kind of um, make, do and mend approach to life. Mm. And it kind of speaks to the, also that notion that these people on the road don't want to be pitied. There is a great tension also, I think, in not wanting to be cast as homeless. That's another level of degradation, I think, especially in American society. Mm. And there's a scene where Fern, Francis McDermott, is in a supermarket and comes across someone she knows, the daughter of someone she knows, and the daughter very sadly says, oh, I hear that you're homeless. And Fern says, no, no, I'm not homeless, I'm houseless. So there's a certain kind of sense that you retain some spirit of yourself and some sense of your pride and worth and value to life. And that, I think, uh, comes through very strongly. So these are sort of battle-hardened people who are not looking for any pity whatsoever. And first and foremost amongst them is Fern. Yeah, and, and, though, and you say that they're in a tradition of economic migrants in the US, aren't they? In a way, this is, this is a long historical tradition. The film has a historical slant. Yes, exactly. What very clearly comes to mind uh, is uh, John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, uh, which is written in the late 1930s, uh, made into a, a film of the same title by uh, John Ford, actually. And I remember watching that film as a child and, and feeling very moved by it and, and very um, protective towards the characters on the screen. And they are uh, from Oklahoma, the, and they are a kind of despised band of people who um, are, through no fault of their own, through the Great Depression, uh, are finding a way through society to find a place which they can live in. And it did, that period did lead to a great birth of the trailer culture, people building trailer homes that they could attach to their wagons or to their houses or their vans and, and drag them from pillar to post from one part of America to the other. But what happened, I think, was that um, there were state interventions in the late 30s and 40s with uh, a great desire to build social housing. So that nomadic life came to an end. And I think what's different, uh, what's different now is that there doesn't seem to be any end in sight for these modern nomads. And they seem to be quite content with that. There's no sense in the film that these people are in any rush to go back to the normalcy of the life that they've left behind. And that's it's quite a, a tricky thing to come to as a viewer. You, you want there to be some resolution, but this film is without resolution and all the more powerful for it, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's all sorts of strands to it. It's like we we're saying, there's the fictional and fact and the historical and the socioeconomic and the emotional one. There's also, as you mentioned, there's a filmic tradition, isn't there? Because there's you uh, you were seeing allusions and echoes also of some of the great Westerns. Is that right? Yes, I was struck by that because they're out there on, on the plains, uh, on these sometimes lunar landscapes with these great skies, these wonderful uh, dusks that set. And the, the light is very glamorous in a way. It's very enchanting and very appealing. And in some of these bleak landscapes, you are reminded of the uh, Westerns of people like John Ford. And there's a sense I felt Fern is like the John Wayne character in the film, The Searchers, who seems to have some mission in life and has some purpose in life, but actually is lost. And when we watch the end of The Searchers, we, we see the John Wayne character looking out through the doorway into a very bleak future. And there's a, there's a balance of, of kind of loneliness and landscape, isn't it? It's very beautiful, some of it. Yeah, I thought it was very tender. And I thought, I thought that what was interesting for me was that Chloe Zhao has been in the United States for about 20 years, I believe. She was uh, from China originally. And there's something about, I think, the ability of, of outsiders to not worry too much about uh, portraying America in a nostalgic way. That, that, I mean, this film in a way is quite nostalgic for this sort of lost era, for the sense of being a, a pioneer, but for all the sense of self-sufficiency. And with her outsider eye, I think Chloe Zhao has, has seen something very clear about, about the sense of the American identity, which sometimes gets, gets lost in, the, in the, the great number of American Hollywood films that uh, 
are being churned out mm. on a weekly and daily basis, it seems. Um, speaking of the film industry, do you think do you think this will be one that might win awards? I think so. I, I think um, both the director, the cinematographer, and um, Francis McDermott, I think they will be strong contenders for the Oscars. I did read somewhere, though, that um, Frances McDormand is so down to earth that she probably will turn up to the Oscars wearing her Crocs. She's, <laughs> she's that kind of <laughs> unfussy, unshowy type of uh, person, as well as an unshowy, unfussy type of actor. But if she does win the Oscar, I shall be uh, raising my glass to her because I think it's a fantastic performance. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's, it's a beautiful film. And thank you for... Um illuminating it for us thank you colin it's always a joy thank you for joining us thanks lucy thank you that is all we have time for this week our thanks go to joyce carol oates alice wadsworth and colin grant Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, Booker Prize-winning author Douglas Stewart talks candidly about coping with his mother's alcoholism and being gay in 80s working-class Glasgow. I was attacked very violently when I was, I think I was 15, and actually it was an old Glaswegian housewife who was driving by. She thought they were stamping on a dog and so stopped her car and got out and chased these boys away and and at the centre of it was me. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Douglas Stewart, in his own words. Now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.